welcome to Sentient Planet. Do you hear the call? It's Susan. In this, our last episode for Season 1, I chat with Amy Sowers-Cober about the rising global movement to restore the ecosystems upon which so much sentient life depends, free-flowing rivers. Amy is the Vice President of Communications for the powerful conservation group American Rivers. We devote a chunk of our discussion to the benefits of removing the thousands of dams that still crisscross North America, honing in on the Snake River. Right now, there is a groundswell of support to breach four dams on the lower Snake River to save the salmon and southern resident orca from extinction. It's a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, Amy says, requiring immediate action and funding from the Biden administration or U.S. Congress. Hey, thank you for listening to our first season of Sentient Planet and for all the love and encouragement you've heaped upon us. We promise to be back in a few weeks with more animal stories from the field and ever-deepening conversations with the advocates who are dedicated to the defence and preservation of species. Amy, thank you so much for joining us on Sentient Planet today. I'm really excited to talk with you. Thanks for having me. So, North America is a land, it seems to me, that's teeming with river systems. There's the Colorado, the Mississippi, the Columbia. Can you give us the lay of the land? Just how many major river systems are there in North America? What threatens them? And how have we humans altered rivers over the past few generations? Yes, well, there are close to 3 million miles of rivers across our country. And just taking a step back, I mean, and having your listeners think about this, I feel like everybody has a river story somewhere in their life. Maybe you don't have to be a kayaker or, you know, you don't have to fish. Maybe it's a river or stream from your childhood. Maybe it's a river that you drive over every day on your commute to work. I mean, whatever it is, it's always fun for me to ask people like, what's, what's your favorite river? Would you have a river story? And nine times out of 10. And sometimes people get really emotional when they're sharing their story. Right. Because um, rivers, we have this really important, deep emotional connection to rivers, to moving water. There's something just so fundamentally essential about that to us. So we have rivers, they are the veins and arteries of our country. Um, I mentioned, you know, 3 million miles from big major rivers like the Mississippi, the Colorado, the Columbia, um, the Delaware, the Susquehanna rivers like that to the stream in your own backyard. And all of them are equally important and they knit together to form this, it's like the bloodstream, right? The lifeline, the lifeblood of our country. We get our drinking water from rivers. They support fish and wildlife, floodwaters. So all these things are so important, especially in an era of climate change when, what are the impacts of climate change? Well, floods, droughts, I mean, it's hitting our water cycle. So that's how we're feeling these impacts primarily. So it just makes healthy rivers all the more important to us. Right. What are the main threats to rivers in North America? Well, there are many threats to rivers um, because they, you think about how a river flows from its headwaters 
perhaps in a mountain or in a forest somewhere down through a valley where you might have farmland and cities and out to the ocean, think about all the impacts to clean water and to the river's flow along the way. Some of those impacts are dams. Um, that's a major one that American Rivers works on. A dam blocks a river's flow. The main fundamental quality of a river is that it flows, while well, a dam stops that. So nothing is more lethal sometimes to a river than a dam. It blocks the fish and wildlife migration. Um, it blocks the natural flow of water. So that's a big one. Something called non-point source pollution sounds like a kind of a complicated term, but what it really means is think about if you're outside when it rains, the rainwater that flows over a parking lot or a road, what does it pick up? It picks up oil and grease and all of that gunk and washes off quickly into the stream. That's different from point source, which is from a single point, like a factory spewing mm -hmm. pollution into a, into a river. You know, that's still an issue in some cases, but the Clean Water Act for a lot in, in a lot of ways dealt, dealt with that and put safeguards around that. But the non-point source where you have pollution flowing off of surfaces across cities and towns and, and farm fields, I mean, the pesticides that wash into rivers, that's a big challenge and it's widespread. That's an important one. Um, and then I just mentioned, you know, climate change the increasing floods and increasing droughts and changing, just stressing our rivers and the communities that live along them, increasing demands on rivers, excessive diversions. And so there's just, there's a lot that a group like American Rivers has to try to tackle and prioritize um, with our partners across the country. Right. You mentioned dams. There's some really interesting figures that I saw out there. I think I saw this on your website that there's been 1,600, 1,600 dams removed here in the US, that just kind of blew my mind. That just seems like a huge number of dams to have been removed. But can you contextualize that in how many we actually have? And what's the work left to be done? Yeah, there are about 90, more than 90,000 dams. Wow. On rivers across the country. Yeah, kind of a staggering number. Big dams, small dams built for all kinds of different purposes. Not all dams do all these things, but some provide hydropower, energy generation, some provide flood control, some provide water supply. So really depending on the dam, what are the benefits? But so many of those dams, those, those 90,000 dams, so many of them are old, outdated. Some no longer serve the purpose they were built for. Some just are doing incredible harm to, to the river, to people, to fish. Others are just not economic to operate anymore. So, so many of these dams need to come down. Um, not all of them. American Rivers isn't, we're not calling for the removal of all dams. We realize that they're part of our life and, you know, some of them are, are, are useful, but a lot of them need to come down. And uh, as you said, many, many have. Um, the, the river restoration movement in this country is incredibly strong and growing stronger every day. Other countries around the world are inspired by the success that we've had here hmm. in terms of tearing down old dams. So that's fantastic. And, the, and there are so many great examples of success um, that we've had just in the past couple of years of rivers coming back to life. Uh, but we, we certainly have more work to do. I mean, when you think about we've, re we've removed 1,600 or 1,700 and there are 90,000 still out there, we have a lot of work to do. Um, but, you know, think about the benefits. What are the benefits of taking down an old dam? I'm thinking about uh, the Patapsco River in Maryland, which flows into the Chesapeake Bay. We tore down Bloaty Dam several years ago. 
nine people had drowned at that dam. It was in a state park. So lots of families go to play there and swim. It was a safety hazard. People got trapped in the, in the hydraulic at the base of the dam. Oof. It's awful. Yeah. So that, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of reasons to remove a dam, not just environmental, but, uh, but in some cases it's public safety in other cases, it's economic, you know, all kinds of reasons, but a free flowing, healthy river has so many benefits for the environment, for the community. And it's just an incredible thing to witness. I mean, I, if you, if people ever get a chance to see a dam come down and see that first gush of water break free and the river come back to life, it's an emotional thing. Because like I said at the beginning, rivers, free flowing water has this amazing power that I just think as, as people, we just are, we're attuned to that. Right. Well, let's talk about the Elwha River in the northwest corner of Washington State. So you've been there. Another one of our guests, Ken Balcom, who's the renowned orca research, he recently acquired some riverfront property on the Elwha to try and protect just a small piece of Chinook salmon spawning territory. Why is the Elwha a success story? And does it show us the way forward, you think, for further dam removals? Yeah, the Elwha is um, its such a magical place. I remember a backpacking I trip I did. Um, this was the, when the dams were still there. So this was many years ago now, but we, we backpacked up to the headwaters and just such a magical place on the Olympic Peninsula. The Elwha is this incredible story of, of restoration and resilience. It's, we like to think of it as this laboratory of a river coming back to life because the whole river is, most of the river is protected within Olympic National Park. So the only thing that was damaging this river for years were those two dams, Elwha Dam and Glines Canyon Dam. And so when you can remove those dams and just let the river restore itself and see what happens and you don't have any, other, you know, I mentioned the other threats to rivers. There's no, there's not a lot of pollution going into the Elwha or anything like that. So you can really see how does a river restore itself? How does mm -hmm. it come back to life? And there's just these incredible stories and you know, all the scientists looking at that river, but the entire, it's not just salmon. I mean, so, so much of the Elwha story, yes, it's because we, we need to restore the salmon and it's the entire web of life. And that includes people. And so you just think of all these interconnected benefits from the insects to the elk, to the birds and the, the riparian um, vegetation that's come back and, and what that means for the lower Elwha Klallam tribe um, that has cared for this river and led the restoration effort. Um, it's really, really inspiring. And I, I, I did, I do think since we started talking about dam removal on the Elwha many years ago now, it captures the imagination. And I think that it, it gets people thinking, well, what could this mean for my river? Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, wow, that's amazing. I, I want that on my river too. Well, of course, our podcast is devoted to animals and the species we share the earth with and who have a, a right to, to be here. And they can't survive, obviously, without habitat, um, which is shrinking by the day all over the planet, as you know. So it seems to me that obviously river ecosystems are some of the most important habitats on the planet. And you just articulated some of the many species that that those river systems um, protect. And in season one, we were looking a lot at the at the orca the southern resident killer whales and their dependence on primarily Chinook salmon. So, yeah, the whole web of life and rivers being a cradle for um, the beginning of life too. Can you describe some of that to us? What happens in a healthy river system to get life started and to continue to support it? 
Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, we're, we're losing freshwater species faster than terrestrial or marine animals. So just that just puts a finer point on the urgency of why we need to protect rivers. But yeah, I mean, when you think about what does a healthy river look like? It's so dynamic and there's so many little pockets of amazing habitat diversity. You've got the wetlands and the estuary at that at the river's mouth where it's maybe a little swampy and there's grasses and like you th I'm thinking about baby salmon and where baby salmon might need to hide from predators. And then you have all kinds of habitat. Like as you move upstream, you've got fast water, you've got side channels, you've got flooding. I mean, that flooding is a natural part of a river ecosystem. And in, in all river systems, the wildlife have evolved with those seasonal pulses. And in some cases, that's like their signal to reproduce. So whether floodwaters spreading out onto the landscape provides other places for fish and other wildlife to hide or spawn or find food or reproduce, I mean, whatever it is, just that seasonal pulse of water is so important. The diverse habitat, obviously the quality of water is so important, clean water. And like I said, I mean, it's fish are the obvious ones because they live in the water, but so many different animals. I think in the Southwest, I forget the percentage, but it's an amazing percentage of animals that depend on that riparian corridor, the corridor along the river at some point in their life cycle, um, which is no surprise because especially in a desert, um, you're going to need that that water source. Right. And of course, humans, we, we need that water. We need fresh water. All terrestrial life needs fresh water. And, you know, I'm thinking maybe we, as humans, take it for granted that fresh water is going to be there because it seems like rivers are abundant and it seems like fresh water is abundant. And yet, and maybe you can give us some figures on this, Amy, fresh water is actually a very rare commodity on this planet. Can you put that into context a little bit for us? I mean, how much fresh water do rivers supply and how much fresh water is there in the world? Well, right. So Earth is a water planet. I mean, you look at it and it's mostly blue. I mean, even our own bodies are, I think, what, 60% water? I mean, we're, we are, we're water. <laughs> we're water creatures. We come from the water. Um, but I think it's less than 1% of water on Earth is actually available for human use, which means most of it is salty and in the ocean. Most of it is tied up in glaciers or, you know, otherwise like in the atmosphere and not, not available for everyday drinking. Or in the ground. Yeah. Right. So while water seems, you know, very abundant, it's actually very precious. And we do, we do take it for granted. I mean, I mean, I, I have two boys and I'm constantly like, turn off the water when you're brushing your teeth, trying to remind them, you know, I, of course, I'm going to tell them it comes from the river. We can't waste it. But I think we do take it for granted just because it's so easy for us. Um, those of us who are privileged enough to have clean, affordable, safe drinking water in our homes. Not everybody does. Uh, it's an amazing thing that in 2021 in the, in the United States, there are, I think it's like one or two million people who don't have clean water in their homes uh, because of lack of infrastructure. And it's, that's a not acceptable. Yeah. Places like Flint, Michigan, I'm imagining. Right. Or, um, you know, there's been a lot of press lately about the Navajo Nation, for example, rural communities in California. I mean, there's, there's just a huge lack of, of investment. Hmm. But yeah, I mean, we, we, we have that disconnect because it's so easy to get most of the time. When you, I've seen all kinds of polling on environmental issues and 
clean water consistently polls the highest in terms of environmental concerns. When when people are asked, "What do you are you worried about climate change or whatever?" You know, all, so many different so many different issues, and people say clean water, and that's really great. But we don't always connect the dots between okay, well, if we want clean water, like that means we have to have healthy rivers because that's where the water comes from. It doesn't just magically appear when we when we turn on the tap. Every year, your organization, American Rivers, publishes a most endangered rivers list. How do you determine that list? Yeah, we've been doing this report for, I think it's 36 years, and it was a tremendous release in 2021. We released the list in April, and um, it's still going strong. Um, We're still getting a lot of feedback and questions and, and coverage of it, but we ask three questions when we're putting this list together. There are three criteria for the rivers. One is the significance of the river to people and wildlife. Two is the magnitude of the threat. And the third one is almost the most important. It's, is there a decision point in this coming year that the public can influence to change the course of for this river, um, to make sure that things go well? And we don't always have that decision point. A lot of rivers across the country are in trouble. But we, in order to be on this list, there has to be a point that uh, the public can weigh in on. And whether that's like a public comment period or legislation, or there's all kinds of ways that can happen. I think it's effective because it really does focus on that decision point. We're not just making vague statements about, you know, we need to save this special place. We are saying very specifically to a specific person, a decision maker, an agency, you need to do, you need to take this step. And that's why it has such a powerful track record um, because it's specific and it's timely, and we rally the public to, to speak up. People often want to get involved in these types of issues and they care about the environment around them, but they just don't know or they feel overwhelmed, they don't know what to do. So it sounds like you're providing a call to action as well for the public. Yeah, absolutely. What is that this year? Well, so it's a list of 10 rivers. Um, the number one river is the Snake River in the Pacific Northwest, where we're facing this unprecedented confluence of both threat and opportunity. Snake River salmon are facing extinction. There's no question about that. And so that's a really dire threat. I mean, that is an existential threat for salmon, for rivers, for the region, for Northwest tribes that depend on them. At the same time, we have this once in a generation opportunity to actually do something about that and not only prevent extinction, but recover healthy salmon runs. And that opportunity is with Congress and the Biden administration, with this big infrastructure package that they're talking about right now, to remove the four dams on the lower Snake River, which are playing a tremendous role in driving these fish to extinction. But not only that, because we also need to replace the benefits those dams currently provide, hydropower, transportation, irrigation. We can do that. So it's this sort of roll up our sleeves, yes, we can kind of moment where it's on us. You know, this is it. Inaction equals extinction. And for 20 years or more, we've heard decision makers across the region talking about how, yes, they want to save the salmon too. Well, you know, words, words, (laughs) words, words, 
words matter to a point, but then they, <laughs> then they don't, but if there's no action attached to it. And at this point, we're at the end of the line and we need, yes, we need, we need positive statements, but we also need immediate funding from Congress and we needed a very aggressive timeline. We're not talking about another blue ribbon panel that's gonna take five years to do another study. And we know exactly what these fish need. We know how to replace the dam's benefits. So let's get it done. Yeah. And let's get it done in a way that works for the entire region and, and has benefits for communities across the region. The fish, of course, which are the primary food source, I just need to remind our listeners of the southern resident orca who uh, have been endangered since 2005. Let's talk a little bit more about the Snake River and the dams there. Um, there is a plan by Congressman Mike Simpson to breach those dams. Is that a plan that American Rivers supports? We were thrilled to see Congressman Simpson come out with that package in February. It was the first serious, bold plan in decades for around this issue. And his plan isn't perfect, but we absolutely embraced it as a really important conversation starter. And we were also thrilled to see uh, Congressman Blumenauer from Oregon come out recently standing together with Congressman Simpson in support of that proposal, $33.5 billion package, two congressmen from opposite sides of the aisle, very different um, on the political spectrum. But how powerful is it that we can have that kind of bipartisan support for something so important to our region? And that is not something I, I don't think we're seeing elsewhere in the country right now. So that just shows how important this issue is and why it really does, you know, it crosses the aisle. It doesn't matter if you're from the west side, you know, of the northwest or on the east side. I mean, just this issue connects us and the solutions will bring us together. A couple other decision makers who came out recently with the statement, Washington Governor Inslee and Senator Patty Murray, mm -hmm. um, they came out saying they don't support Congressman Simpson's package However, they do want to see a collaborative effort to save salmon from extinction. So, you know, to that we say, well, fantastic. You're partway there. Let's do it. And, and I think we have extremely high expectations. As I said, you know, we've been talking about this for 20 or more years. Mm -hmm. And Senator Murray has an incredible opportunity to make sure that we do get the funding we need, the aggressive timeline we need to once and for all, let's solve this and let's remove those dams. Let's restore a free-flowing Snake River and bring the salmon back. Let's honor commitments with Native American tribes and let's invest to make sure that our communities are stronger, um, that we have a strong agricultural economy, that we have clean energy, that, you know, all of this is possible. We know, again, we know how to replace the benefits of these dams. Let's get it done. We have an incredible opportunity before us right now. Well, the concern that I have from Governor Inslee's response that I that I heard, and partly this was in a personal email that I received when I raised the issue with him um, as, a, as a concerned citizen of Washington State, is that he seemed to be indicating that we needed to do further study, which to your point, we may not need to. We have done a lot of studies in, in the past. So that was concerning. He had that hearing into saving the Southern resident orca as well and had a task force set up but that's received a lot of criticism as well because there's been no real action on the primary thing that those animals need, which is coming, well, it's related to what we're talking about, is salmon, right? So Yeah, well, and there's, I think that 
you can go down these little rabbit holes of, oh, well, we need to restore Puget Sound rivers and, or, you know, like pitting Puget Sound rivers against the Columbia Basin. And no, we need to, we need to do it both. We need to do it all. The Snake River was once the main producer of salmon in the whole Columbia Basin. The Columbia River was, you know, the largest salmon producer in the world. I mean, this, this is what the orcas evolved to depend on. And not just the orcas again, but, you know, the entire web of life across the region, Northwest tribes. So I think any conversations that try to argue one river or one place is more important than the other, I think that that's just kind of a smokescreen for making excuses to not do anything. We need a solution now. We need action now. So let's work together to figure out what that is. Okay, you know, if it's not Congressman Simpson's full package, but the alternative can't be, well, we need five more years of study. Right. We, again, we need immediate funding and we need an aggressive timeline. And we have this opportunity with Congress and the Biden administration thinking about all kinds of investments that will boost the economy, create jobs, address injustices to tribes, help us be more resilient in the face of climate change. All of this that we're talking about in terms of restoring the Snake River and investing in clean energy, all of these solutions, that they're all gonna do that. And if we don't do it now, these fish will go extinct. Yeah, We are at the end of the road. And so I would just challenge anyone who's coming back with, well, you know, we need to wait. Let's work together to figure out something that we can get in this package that will put us on a path to a better future for Sam and all of us. Yeah, I mean, you, you talk about it in a way that seems so doable. And also you speak about it with a level of urgency as if this is a once in a generation opportunity that's in front of us. I had the amazing opportunity to spend some time with the Nez Perce tribal chairman and others from the tribe um, about a month ago. We did a interview for ABC World News Tonight and went out. I saw that. Yeah, we went out on a jet boat up the river and, and just heard their fish biologists talking about a recent study they did about just looking at specific salmon runs and the numbers and it is beyond dire. I mean, like it's hard to find words. <laughs> Urgent. I mean, uh, I think they use the term desperate. desperate. <laughs> I mean, they use the term extinction vortex. I mean, at some point when you have such low returns, they're not self-sustaining. You're not going to have fish in for eight, you know, 16 years from now. Like we need action now. And I think hearing the Nez Perce call for that you know, we need to heed that warning. And they have been leading the effort to save salmon on the Snake River forever. Um, and we need to we need to listen to them and follow them. And they're a sovereign nation. I mean, the Biden administration and Congress needs to listen. Needs to listen, yeah. I mean, it just makes me wonder why. I mean, we don't necessarily have to dig into this, but why has it been so contentious and difficult to get movement on the snake as opposed to some other areas of the country where dam removal hasn't been maybe as difficult. Do you have thoughts about that? Hmm. Well, I mean, let's be clear. Like these are significant dams. I mean, I don't want to downplay. These are four federal dams. They provide benefits to the region. And, and the, the region in large part was built up around the Columbia Snake hydropower system. There's a lot of, it's, you know, the, the power structure not, I'm not talking about the hydropower, like the people power of politics mm -hmm. of the region. 
But I also think that there's a bit of mythology surrounding what these dams really mean for the region. So some year, one of the dams provides irrigation, the barge transportation they provide helps growers get their goods to market. And yes, there are some family farmers who benefit from that, but a lot of corporate farms as well, if you look at the, who actually owns that land. So when you start to dig into who's really benefiting from these dams, that's enlightening. But again, I don't want to downplay the benefits these dams provide. And that's why we've been extremely clear. Yes, we're calling for dam removal and investing to replace their benefits because we have to, that's a, that's a responsibility we all have. Yes, we still need clean energy, wind and solar. We can do that. We've got to have a strong agricultural economy. We've, you know, so all of that is, is part of the package and part of what we're all calling for. And I think, you know, you mentioned, yes, it's been very controversial, but wow, look at this moment we're in now where you've got a Republican congressman from Idaho, Congressman Simpson, and a progressive Democrat from Portland, Congressman Blumenauer, standing together. They did a virtual webinar a couple of weeks ago, talking together about this. That's major. What a major milestone. Especially in this day and age, right, where everybody is so pitted against each other in D.C. and actually throughout the country, it's really... It's really hopeful. Yeah. We could talk about the snake all day and we didn't actually even describe it. We probably should do that too. I mean, just to give people an idea of what the Snake River is. I mean, it moves through four states. Describe it for us, Amy. Yeah, well, it actually originates in Wyoming, flows through Idaho and eastern Washington and, and enters the Columbia River. It is a gorgeous, rugged, beautiful, very arid in places landscape and was once the biggest salmon producer for the Columbia Basin. But it's not just the Snake River itself. Think about all of the tributaries, the rivers that are part of that Snake River system. For example, the Salmon River in Idaho is part of this amazing wilderness and has incredible habitat. And it's really probably the best remaining intact, healthy salmon habitat in the lower 48. So when we're talking about what salmon need in an era of climate change, with the rivers heating up, higher temperatures, higher water temperatures because of the heat. If we can make sure that these salmon have that cold water refuge in the headwaters of the Snake River, those mountain streams that are clear and cold, that's what they need. And that's how we will continue to have salmon into the future, if we can make sure that they've got the habitat that they need. like to shift gears and talk a little bit about the rights of nature. So I've seen coming across my desk all sorts of river ecosystems around the world receiving legal rights of nature. Can you educate us on this movement and what it's achieving for rivers and species? What do you know about it? Well, yeah, I mean, it's not something that American Rivers has been leading on, but I am familiar with it and I think it's really inspiring. So it, it basically says a river has the rights of a human being, is my understanding of it, which I think is a, a really wonderful and amazing way to think about our relationship with the river. And I think that that's the value of it, is that it forces us to think about rivers as equals, as, as relatives, as neighbors, as opposed to something we just take, take, take from. Because when you have a relationship 
there's some reciprocity there. There's give and take, and it's a mutually beneficial relationship. So I think this movement really forces us to think about our relationship with rivers. And another wonderful thing, I mean, my observation about this movement is that it is largely led by indigenous people, which again is another really important aspect that we, as me, I mean, a white woman um, who works for a national you know, nonprofit, we have a lot to learn. And I think that we, we can step back in, in a lot of cases and, and let, let indigenous people lead on some of this really important work that is really transformational. Indeed, and especially given, again, the urgency of the crises that we're, that we're facing. They certainly um, have a lot of information to share and a lot of leadership that they're ready to show and give if we can just step back and maybe show a little bit of humility. That's huge, yes. Yeah, right. So the rights of nature movement seems to be lagging here in the US. We could probably just even leave it at that for now. But in Indigenous cultures, both here and in Australia, which is where I'm from, there is a perspective through those Indigenous, um, that Indigenous thinking and through that lens that ecosystems are in themselves living, even potentially sentient. You're a kayaker. Mm-hmm. You're out on the rivers. How often do you get out on the rivers? And what are you experiencing out there when you're connecting with nature? Oh, man. Yeah, I kayak. Um, I mentioned I have two boys and we try to do lots of river trips with them. And I'm just remembering um, a trip we did a couple summers ago. Uh, my son was maybe 10, or 9 or 10. And it was his first time in an inflatable kayak. Um, we were on the John Day River in Oregon. And it's a multi-day trip and not big rapids, but enough that if you're in a, kayaking for the first time, like, like your, my son, and he was like kind of nervous. But uh, I just, you know, we were in, so we were in the kayak together and it was just so amazing to see his transformation over these multiple days on the river. Cause at first he's like gripping the paddle, like, oh my God, we're going to get hit by a wave and nervous and doesn't want to fall in. And then fast forward to the last day where he's like trying to hit the big waves and like bring it on kind of feeling. And so just sharing that with him, because, you know, I, I've had so many amazing experiences on rivers and they mean so much in my life. And then being able to share that with him and watch him kind of in real time, like see what that does to him was really, was really fun. Yeah. I mean, I know I could talk for hours about how rivers speak to us. And I feel like, especially in this past year of the pandemic, what a hard year. (laughs) So many people we've all had and, and for different reasons. And I think so many people found refuge and solace outside because everything else was shut down and it wasn't safe to be indoors with other people. And so, so many people rediscovered or discovered rivers and outdoor activities and and the hiking trails. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a big hiker and I've never seen them with so many people on them as what there was during the yeah. height so of the pandemic. They, they, fill, they fill our souls. They fill our buckets. The power of moving water. I mean, it's a really magical, soothing thing. I was talking to a friend who's the marketing director at NRS and they sell river gear and rafts and all kinds of things. And I think their orders have just were like off the charts just because everybody wanted to get outside and needed, needed gear. And so... I think this past year really showed how people value rivers and and nature in their lives. So what is your river story? Oh, gosh. Probably my first memory or experience was the creek behind my house growing up in Maryland. 
where uh, my brother and I and our friends would just spend summer days, just hours and hours by ourselves with no parental supervision, which, oh gosh, it was, it was so fun. And I, I remember um, we had this little blue and yellow kayak. It wasn't a big creek and you could jump across it, but it had these rocks and some cool little waterfalls. And I just remember being mesmerized by these mini little waterfalls and shoots and sluices and sending the kayak down and watching it and imagining myself in there. And it was, it was magical. You kind of lose yourself, right, in those moments and experiences on wild rivers from the Copper River in Alaska to the salmon to the Rogue in Oregon. And I mean, I remember be going to Alaska for the first time. I grew up on the East Coast and got a chance to float the Copper River. And my whole knowledge of what a, what river is, is just blown out of the water because, you know, in Alaska, a river can be a mile wide, right? And, and the mountains are a mile high. Everything is so much bigger. Right. And it's braided. And I mean... It's hard to get a perspective up there that, that's accurate. Everything is just yeah. on a scale that I've never experienced anywhere else. But I think that's the, the cool thing about rivers is that they're so different. I've been the float of the Grand Canyon, and that's a whole other experience. And every river has its own unique personality. And often, you know, the color of the water, the, the, what the canyon looks like, the tree, everything is so different. But then there are, there are these commonalities, too, because it's moving water and it's, it's magical and you know, when you're on a multi-day river trip, your whole sense of time changes. It's called river time. And ideally, you don't have a watch or your phone with you, on, right? So mm -hmm. you can really lose yourself. Um, and it doesn't matter what time it is. Is it lunchtime? Well, are you hungry? Uh, yeah. I mean, is it dark out? Should we go to sleep? So for me, there's just nothing like a multi-day river trip because you really just sort of connect with that flow. And it is so different from this. <laughs> this I, I completely relate. So I just got back from three days of backpacking. And the river time, what you're saying about river time really resonates. When we came to the end of the trail after two nights out, we sat down to have some breakfast, me and a couple of the companions, and we talked about how we felt like we'd been out there for a week. Yeah, because there's so much experience that gets crammed into a day, perhaps. Yeah, it's so rich. And when it's, it's a completely different reality to this day-to-day -day stuff that we, that we do in the, in the other world. And that's the real world. I mean, that's the thing we always say, like, mm -hmm. oh, got to return to the real world. Like, actually, no, this is, this is the real world, and that is like, something else. Yeah, and I think that's why those of us who love the outdoors, which I, I think most humans do, like you were saying, that's what we love about it. It's that's that's the reality, and it reminds us of of that. Yeah, you know, I can't let you go without asking you a question. Um, sorry, back to the politics for a second, yeah. which is back to that world <laughs> that that has such an effect on the real world. What kind of response are you guys getting from the Biden administration? Uh, really positive. Um, I mean, they so when they first took office, they said that they had four big priorities, uh, climate, economy, health, and justice. And that completely matched up with our priorities and what we're talking about when we talk about rivers. Rivers flow through all of those things and are part of all of those solutions. And so um, we're seeing a lot of great traction and progress. Environmental justice, we can't do anything without prioritizing that and making sure that anything we're 
calling for in the conservation world is centering justice and equity. The Biden administration has a lot of work to do to undo some of the damage that was done over the past four years. We're heartened by a return to science. We're heartened by a commitment to fighting climate change. Things like the 30 by 30 effort that they announced recently to protect or restore 30% of lands and waters by 2030. I mean, we have a lot to say about that in terms of prioritizing rivers, but how wonderful that we're going in that direction as opposed to playing defense all the time, which is what we were doing. So right. we feel like this, um, we have a great opportunity with the, these conversations around this big infrastructure package um, in terms of clean water, in terms of river restoration, and we're going to keep at it. And specifically on the Snake River dams, you're hearing specifically on that project that they are supportive? Well, we're pushing for it. Yeah. I mean, no, no, no promises, um, but that is a big opportunity. It's all happening now. We're, we're pushing for it. And like I said, I mean, we have high expectations of our decision makers here in the Northwest because they have an incredible chance to lead and an incredible legacy that they can leave. I mean, this is this is a generational uh, opportunity. Yeah, what a moment. Well, thank you for all the work that you and your organization are doing, and I hope that you hold their feet to the fire and that, and that we can get this done. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's been great talking with you. I appreciate it. Thanks. For more information on today's guest, please visit sentientplanetpodcasts.com and join our pod. Sentient Planet is created by Susan Woodward and Tiffany Owens. Social media by Bridget MacArthur. Art direction by Janet Grimwade. Original logo by Vonda Whitley. Photograph by Mark Stoop. Intro music, The Spaces Between by Scott Buckley. Interstitial music, Between the Rings by Stellar Drone. You can follow us on social media at Sentient Planet Podcast or subscribe on Patreon for behind the scenes content that you won't hear anywhere else. Thanks for listening. And as always, love to all beings, great and small.